Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. In this podcast, we'll be looking at Lord's Day 12, question 31 in the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks us, why was he, Jesus, called Christ, that is, anointed? And the answer we must give is because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption and our only High Priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us, and ever lives to make intercession for us with the Father, and our Eternal King, who governs us by his Word and Spirit, and defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Before we begin the class today, we're going to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16 verse 13 to verse 20. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was the Christ, that he was Jesus, the Christ. So our question today, why do we call Jesus Christ? I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. As Christians, we often rightly refer to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. I actually get really annoyed when I hear media reporters and commentators speaking very respectfully about the Prophet Muhammad. Yet never is anything like that same deference given to the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, who laid down his life for our sins upon the cross. That really maddens me. 
Sometimes the visible church has no one to blame but ourselves. I once visited two elderly sisters who had asked me to call, with a view perhaps to attending our church. I asked them why they had left their existing church, and they told me that they were saddened by the modern trend, and how that affected the way people speak about the Lord Jesus. Like many older people, they could probably throw the drums and the praise band and all that kind of stuff, but they didn't really like the way the modern church seems to speak about the Saviour. This matey Jesus that they talk about, seldom speaking his name with reverence. They said to me, He is our Saviour. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, not my pal Jesus. So why is this so important? Well, Christ is not just a surname. Jesus Christ is not a name like Jimmy Thompson or Molly Brown. The word Christ is a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, and it means the Anointed One. That's what's so astonishing about Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. Jesus and the disciples have travelled to the shores near Caesarea, and presumably they're seated together in a group, learning in a catechistic fashion a session of questions and answers, the method of teaching that's normally used by rabbis of that day. And Jesus asked the disciples a question, Who do people say that I am? There must have been a variety of views among the people, for the disciples begin to respond by saying that people say that Jesus is one of the Old Testament prophets returned to this earth. Perhaps Elijah or Jeremiah. Maybe even John the Baptist, recently martyred by Herod. Peter's response was more impetuous, perhaps more spontaneous and more heartfelt. He just said what everyone else might have been thinking. He just said what was on his heart. You're the Christ. The word Christ could equally be translated Messiah. The Jews have been expecting a Messiah for many centuries, They'd been expecting a deliverer sent from God who would lead them into freedom, into God's kingdom, who would restore Israel's fortunes, who would establish his righteous kingdom in the world. Peter knew that Jesus was the expected Messiah, although how he would achieve those aims was going to be greatly different from what any of those disciples may have imagined that day. Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah ordained of God and anointed with the Holy Ghost, and that is how the Catechist begins his answer to the question, Why do you call him Christ? We call Jesus Christ because he is ordained of God and anointed with the Holy Ghost. He is the Messiah. What does it mean to say that he is anointed? and ordained. First of all, let's ask, what is anointing? In the Old Testament, anointing was frequently seen as the function of a prophet. When that prophet anointed someone or something with oil for service for God. For example, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, uh, the tabernacle was anointed. Exodus 30, verse 25, and thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary, it shall be an holy anointing oil, and thou shalt anoint the tabernacle of the congregation therewith and the ark of the testimony. 
Anointing was very often done in preparation for marriage, like in Ruth 3 and verse 3. Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known to the man until he hath done some eating and drinking. Or in preparation for kingship or some higher form of service. In First Samuel 16 and verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. In the New Testament, Jesus was anointed with oil by a sinful woman at a Pharisee's house. The women wanted to anoint his body when he had died on the cross. Anointing was about doing God's service. Jesus quoted from Isaiah. He applied it to himself when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Anointings always symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. Like oil, the Holy Spirit is said to be poured out upon God's people. In Isaiah 59 and verse 20, The Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My Spirit that is upon thee. And my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and for ever. Let's digress for a moment or two. I was preaching at a church in East Belfast a while back, and a woman with a distinctly charismatic leaning came over to seek me out and to speak with me before the service. Apparently God had spoken to her about this service and about what I was and what I was not to say. I must have looked somewhat sceptical to say the least. And I told her eventually that it was highly unlikely that the voices she was hearing were actually from God. She responded by warning me sternly that I was not to touch the Lord's anointed, which apparently was her. I've heard that a lot from Pentecostal and charismatic circles in recent years. It's a misapplication of two identical texts in First Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 22 and Psalm 105 and verse 15. We read there saying, Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. The fact that the same injunction is found in both an historical book and a poetic book would tend to make us think that it was a common saying among the people of Israel. God would protect and preserve in his will those whom he had anointed to declare his will to the people, and woe betide anyone who would hinder or harm them. In Jesus, God has finally spoken to us. That important verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, says, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. You see, Jesus is the Anointed One, as prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 61 and verse 1 to 2. That passage that Jesus had been quoting, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord 
hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the broken-hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. What could be clearer? The role of the Old Testament prophets as the anointed ones of God has been superseded by the anointed one himself, by our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That poor deluded woman in Belfast and those who are like her, who think they are modern-day anointed ones, are at best led astray and at worst are actually false Christs, claiming to be little messiahs, in fact little gods. Let's move on. Let's ask a question. What is Jesus anointed for? Have you ever watched an ordination service? During that service, a man, or sometimes several men, a man is ordained to eldership in the church, ruling eldership or teaching eldership. And generally what happens is he will relate his call to the ministry that he's been given, and there'll be a charge preached to the minister by a brother minister, And if he's being inducted into the church at the same time, there'll be a charge to the congregation. And the minister-elect will make promises, and other elders will come forward and lay hands upon him and pray that God will bless his ministry. He is ordained for ministry. So anointing was similar. It's an act of consecration, setting someone apart for service. And since Jesus is said to have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, we need to ask what he was being anointed and ordained to do. Three things, says our catechist. He's anointed to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. Let's look at those three very briefly. Jesus is our prophet, our prophet who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. The main task of a prophet in the Old Testament was to declare the will of God. Sometimes that would involve foretelling future events, but the main task is to declare God's will in any given situation. In Jesus, God's will is completely declared. It is completely revealed, and no further prophetic revelation is necessary. The Catechist reminds us that, as our prophet, Christ is our chief prophet. While the work and the words of the Old Testament prophets are to point us to the Messiah, the Messiah who now has come, we're not to cast them aside or ignore them. We're not to ignore the reading and to cease reading the Old Testament just because the Lord Jesus has come. For the Old Testament is God's revelation to us. It's part of the inspired and infallible Word of God and we are to learn from it. Especially we are to let those prophets teach us about Christ. But Christ is our chief prophet in that only he has fully revealed God the Father to us. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, we read these words. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. 
He is our chief prophet and he is our teacher. And we are therefore to hear everything that he says to us. We are to listen to his word. We are to obey him, for only he has the words of eternal life. John 6 and 67 to 68. And that teaching has been preserved for us in the words of Holy Scripture. So the Catechist is right when he says that Jesus has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. He is our prophet, and he is also our priest. Now, there are two important jobs that a priest did. The first important job was to offer sacrifice. In the Old Testament, those were animal sacrifices that could never cleanse from sin. Their purpose was to foreshadow the coming Messiah, who would shed his blood for sinners. The Hebrew author has much to say for this. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 to 4, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Jesus then would offer himself as a sinless sacrifice on the cross. So Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. But there's another job that a priest has. Not only does the priest offer sacrifice for sins, but he intercedes for the people. The priest's job is to pray for us. Jesus is our intercessor. The one who presents our prayers and praises before God. So again in Hebrews 7 and verse 19 and Hebrews 7 and verse 25, we read amazing words about his intercessory ministry. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ's intercession is a factor for us because he is alive forever and ever, because his intercession will never cease and because it will never fail, for his will and the Father's will are the same. He is our prophet and our priest and our king. A king has two primary functions, and the Catechist mentions both. A king governs us, and a king defends us. After all, we need rules, don't we? We have to live by rules. So we need a governor. We need someone to rule over us. We are part of God's kingdom. And Jesus is our king. So for our own good, our heavenly king rules over us in a kingdom of peace that shall endure forever. And notice how he governs us. Most monarchs keep their subjects in order by some element of force, but not the Lord Jesus. 
our catechist tells us that he governs us by his word and his spirit. Jesus rules his kingdom by means of his infallible word and with his indwelling Holy Spirit, indwelling us. He governs us, but he also defends us. The catechist says he defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. I think perhaps we'll see a little bit more about his preserving and keeping in a later episode. But the second function of a king is always to defend his subjects so that living in peace and security, they are able to live productive lives. And Jesus gives us security for having brought us into his heavenly kingdom through his saving work. He also keeps us safely within it. Luke chapter 1 and verse 33. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There shall be no end. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Why do we call Jesus Christ? Because he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. He is ordained of God the Father. He is anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet, to be our teacher to be the one who has fully and perfectly revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. He is our only high priest. We have no other priest but Jesus, who with the one sacrifice of his body once and for all has redeemed us. Whoever lives to make intercession for us with the Father, he is our King who governs us by his word and his spirit and who defends and preserves us in that wonderful salvation that he has won for us at the cross. 